seated. If you're visiting with us today, um, we are working our way through the Gospel of John, and you notice that we're in chapter 1, which means we haven't worked that far into the Gospel of John, um, and we are desiring really just to let the Lord teach us and shape us and mold us from his word as we go through his gospel. And I just think that's one of the best ways that we can approach God's word as a church family is just to allow God to speak. And uh, this morning, uh, we are uh, in really the second paragraph in chapter one that is the narrative section of it. And um, we're going to be introduced to um, a man by the name of Jesus. And that kind of sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Um, but that is how the, the gospel really is unfolding. Well, since it is Reformation Sunday, I wanted to just begin by, uh, by connecting even what we're talking about today to the Reformation, help it set a stage for, for this text and really unfolding the, the, the impact that John wants us to, to, to take away um, from what he is sharing with us today. Uh, the Re- Reformation is a significant part of church history. We must recognize that. It took place during the 1500s in Europe and uh, involved people uh, like um, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox, John Calvin, just to name a few. Um, it was a time of a renewed passion for the Word of God because the Word of God was hidden from the people. Um, not only that, there were theological implications that... Uh, Uh, the common people did not know about because they weren't able to read the Word of God. And one of those theological implications we mentioned at the beginning of our service today, and that was um, uh, from Martin Luther, who ultimately came to the place where he recognized that the just shall live, how? By faith. And so by faith alone. And in other words, I, I, I don't have to add to that faith any works, any sacraments, any, any duties to somehow prove to God I am worthy of being accepted by him. It is a, a free um, access that God has given us by faith um, to receive this, this gospel um, by God's grace, and it's only through Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot of theological implications that come out of that, but it was certainly a, a return to the teaching of God's word and allowing the word of God to dictate what the church did and what the church didn't do, as opposed to the church dictating what the word of God says and what the word of God means and creating their own standards and their own rules and regulations for what the church should look like. And so ultimately it was a challenge against the ongoing manipulative and corrupt traditions of the church. You just read church history and you read the challenges that Martin Luther posted on the the door of Wittenberg and you'll, you'll understand some of those things are definitely clearly uh, manipulative and uh, corrupt traditions. Um, certainly the gospel as a result of the Reformation was purified. Um, it wasn't a perfect time. Not, not all of the effects of the Reformation uh, took place immediately. There was some refining that still needed to take place over time. Um, and so not all the people involved were necessarily perfect, but they were fighting for the gospel. They were fighting for the truth. They were fighting for God to be glorified. And they were fighting against an institution that really had abandoned God and replaced it with systems and with people who, who lorded over the people. And uh, it was really a time of great suffering, great persecution, and great death. And there is uh, one, one story, just brief story, I want to mention to you, and it's the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. You may know the story. Uh, Hugh Latimer was a very well-known um, preacher in that, in that time, and he was really emphasizing the need for England to embrace the Reformed teachings. And he went to King Henry at that time and, and, and appealed to him, and King Henry was somewhat sympathetic, but King Henry died, and the next person on the scene was whom? Do you know? Huh? Mary. You remember what happened to Mary? Mary, what, what's she known as? Bloody Mary, absolutely. See, she was a staunch Catholic. Yeah, she wasn't a drink. She was a, she was a person, all right? And she was a staunch Catholic, and she wanted to rid England of any reformed presence whatsoever. And so she rounded up a number of key players uh, 
uh, Hugh Latimer was one, and Nicholas Ridley was also part of that. Thomas Cranmer ultimately would be one who would also be burned at the stake. Um, but basically, put them on trial. Um, they were tried for heresy, and uh, both of them were burned together. That would be Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And this is the famous statement that Hugh Latimer said to Nicholas Ridley while they're standing there in the bonfire, and Ridley is, is starting to kind of fold in his, um, in his panic state. And here's what Hugh Latimer says. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust, by God's grace, shall never be put out. Now, what's important about this is that this is just one story of many stories of people who are willing to give their lives for the cause of the gospel, for the truth to be uh, laid out there for the common people. And um, this took place all across Europe. And ultimately, these people were called martyrs. Um, you know what the word martyr is? I mean, it describes someone who is willing to suffer and give up their lives for a cause. That's kind of the vernacular that we use. But the word martyr, specifically the Greek word martyr, means a witness. And here we have John the Baptist who is doing what? Witnessing. And what do we know ultimately happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded. He was martyred ultimately because of his position and his stance against the wife of the king. Okay? And that stance then was not just his own opinion. That stance was a rooted conviction that they were committing sin against God. Okay? And here we have then this idea of, of witnesses. So it's not surprising that this, the Apostle John then unfolds his story. He begins with John the Baptist coming on the scene and bearing testimony and witnessing about the coming of Jesus. And a few weeks ago, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to remind you of this formula that he gave us for being an effective witness. Just as a reminder to you from verses 9 through 13, it's not about me. And when we share the gospel, we must always remember it's not about me. Well, I, I'm afraid, and I don't have the words. and I, It's not about you. I mean, you're not supposed to share the gospel and at the end say, you know, I did such a great job. They are definitely going to be saved. It doesn't work that way. All right? Secondly, um, it is a verbal professing of Christ. So pointing to Christ through the gospel, it's all about him. And ultimately, uh, we're trusting that he is the solution. So this, this person that we're testifying about, we have to believe that this gospel message that we have and that we are proclaiming will truly satisfy someone if they embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's modeled for us then in verses 9 through 13. And then as we saw last week, verses 19 all the way through the end of chapter 1 here really unfold this, this outline for us. Last week we looked at the first one where John the Baptist ultimately is saying over and over and over again, I am not, but he is. It's not about me is what he said. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not, uh, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Well, what are you doing here? Baptizing. Well, I am baptizing with water, but you, you need to be talking or looking for this other person. He's the one you need to be looking for. That's ultimately what that passage was about. John's saying it's not about me. It's about him. Doing all of this deflecting for the purpose of elevating and drawing attention to Jesus. So today, as we come to our, our passage, um, we will notice the second point, and the second point will be emphasized for us here, where the messenger, the messenger has a message which is to be communicated verbally. Remember, it's hard to communicate a message unless you communicate it verbally. I realize, you know, we have Facebook, we have the internet, we can have typewriters, and no, we don't have typewriters. We have computers, you know, 
We, we, we have technology, so it kind of changes the lingo a little bit here, but understand, the, the, the message we have and the message that is communicated here is a message that is communicated verbally. You know, John the Baptist didn't just show up on the scene and start going, you know, J-U, I mean, you know. No, he spoke. And with verbal communication, we have specific information, specific data, specific um, facts about this person who is coming that cannot be communicated, communicated non-verbally. Now, I'll, I'll say this. The message, a messenger has a message which is to be communicated verbally, yet backed up with a Christian, Christ-like life. So it's not that the nonverbal is unimportant. It's just not sufficient. In fact, simply living your, your life in front of people without a verbal witness, first of all, is confusing to unbelievers. I mean, if, if you believe with conviction that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he has called you to live your life according to him and he's commanded you to proclaim and he's commanded you to testify, those who are unbelievers, even if they have a, a little bit of understanding of God's word, are going to be thinking, why, why are they not talking? Are they just really, really fearful about what they believe? It just, it's confusing. Now, I'm not saying you have to blast everyone, but hey, in the, in the course of everyday life, you're, you have opportunity to testify of who God is and what he has done. It's also insufficient for conversion. If you're, if you're just living your life in front of people, it's just not enough. It doesn't communicate the gospel. It just communicates a lifestyle. Now again, here's the third part though. It's only a backdrop for a verbal witness, right? So living should lead to verbalizing. So both have their place, but ver verbalizing the gospel is ultimately where God wants us to be, okay? So what does it look like or, or what is to be our verbal witness? And that is going to be our purpose this morning. There's three things I want you to note. I'll give them to you right now, and then we'll work through them. First of all, um, a verbal witness um, is communicating something about the person of Christ, first of all. All right? Person of Christ. Secondly, it's communicating something about the work of Christ. So the person of Christ is talking about who he is. The work of Christ is talking about what? What he has done. What he has accomplished. Ultimately, what is his mission? The last one here is I'm calling the appeal of Christ, and that would be how we come to know him personally. How do we respond then once we have communicated or understood who he is and what he has done? Okay, so let's take our time right now to do that. Let's just pause, though, for a moment and for a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the opportunity of coming this morning and allowing us, Lord, to open your word and to allow it to speak to us. Um, Lord, this is... This is such a, a great passage of scripture uh, to teach us, Lord, what it means to testify for you. And Lord, I ask that, that you would give us a, an awareness and an understanding of the importance of what it is that you're sharing with us today. Allow me simply to be your messenger, your mouthpiece, and Lord, that, uh, that you would ultimately be the focus. And uh, Lord, you just draw our attention, Lord, to, to your gospel and your goodness and your desire for us to be witnesses for your glory we ask in your name amen the person of christ <clears throat> the person of christ i am a man who through my life has gone by many names my given name is roderick allen Lyndon phillips okay my brother's name is jeffrey ian bomforth phillips okay uh, grew up in england we typically have longer names However, when I was a child and just growing up, I was known as Roddy. That was, you know, when I went to school, it was, Roddy, how you doing? Okay? You're like, yeah, some of you are looking at me like, you don't look like a Roddy at all. Not at all. Not the Twilight Zone or who knows, you know, just, just not the same thing. Um, when I came to the States, I lost the, 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 the name Roddy and refined it to Rod. Okay, they, uh, I actually I introduced myself as Roddy, but the the 
kids couldn't handle it. It was just kind of weird, you know. No, you know, it's the simplicity of our culture, apparently, okay. Um, so those are my, my given names uh, and how those evolved a little bit over time. Then I have some nicknames, okay. Um, and you probably don't know anything about these at all. Um, some of these go back to my history, okay. The first one is Woogie. Yeah, Woogie. Uh, when I was in college, I was known as Woogie. Now, not everyone. I didn't, you know, get, I didn't go to school and, and go into class and the teacher say, Woogie, will you please answer that? It wasn't quite like that. But among my friends, in particular my male friends, I was known as Woogie. In fact, my, uh, on the back of my shirt that was for my society is Woogie. That's what I was known by at that point in time. Uh, then Ralph. Ralph has nothing to do with happy days, okay? Um, it's Roderick Allen Lyndon Phillips, okay? Oh, yeah, 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 okay. PR, anyone know what that means? Pastor Rod. When I was in youth ministry, I was PR. I didn't have an actual name. I had letters. And what was worse than that is my wife was known as Mrs. PR, okay? Mrs. PR. Right? And then I was also known as Dorothy. I explain. I will explain. When I was in college, our, 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 call, our soccer team decided, let's call each other by our mother's names. So we got in the habit of calling each other by our mother's names. And so I'd be on the soccer field, and Bev would be running down the wing yelling, Dorothy, kick it here, and I'd knock it over to Bev, and Bev would knock it over to Noka, and, you know, and what was funny is sometimes the other team would look at us like, what's going on here? It was a great tactic, okay, but it, it stuck. Again, it wasn't with everyone, but it was within a certain group of people, and, I mean, we would, you know, we would meet for different things, and we would, I mean, one, yeah, we would talk, and we would call each other by our mother's names, and a few of them, it stuck and became their actual nickname. And still today, if I saw Bev, I would say, hey, Bev, how you doing? Okay? Just, just the way it is. The foolishness of youth, right? Now, I also have a friend um, in England, a good friend of mine, who prided himself on his name. His name, get this, was Julian Christopher David John Fogger Michael Height. Imagine writing that down in first grade, you know. I'm still writing my name. I didn't get to my test, right? He was also known as Bugsy. So I, we didn't call him Julian Christopher David John Fogger Michael Height. We called him Bugsy. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because there are reasons why names are used. There's reasons why we are given names. There's usually stories behind those names. There's usually maybe events or circumstances that bring about those names. And maybe there's nuances from life that help us understand someone based on some of those names. Now, when, if you have children, um, and let's just say you were at the place where you were choosing a name for your child, you will choose certain names, and there's some names you will not choose. If you broke up with a girlfriend a couple of years before you got married and you had children, you probably will not choose her name as the name of your daughter, okay? You probably will not choose a name of someone that was a bully in school. I mean, there's little things like that, that names have meaning. And, and I say all that because in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, this is the greatest shotgun that we have of an understanding of who Jesus is by his names and titles. From verse 1 to the end of the chapter, at least 16 names or titles are given that refer to Jesus. All right, let's just take a moment here to go through. I'm not going to explain them all because as we go through the gospel, they're going to be fleshed out a little bit, but follow along with me. I'm not gonna, they're just going to pop right up there. You ready for it? Here he is. He is the Word. He is God. He's life. He's light. He's the only Son. He's the only God. The Lord. Jesus. The Lamb of God. The Baptizer with the Holy Spirit. The Son of God. Rabbi. 
the Messiah, the one whom Moses wrote about, King of Israel, Son of Man. I'll leave that up there so you can jot them down. Do you think John is making a point? Do you think he's trying to communicate to us? Don't say he's writing a gospel, and what's the purpose of writing the gospel? One of the purposes of writing the gospel is that someone will read it, right? And in reading it, write out of the stalls, what are they impacted with? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the life. He's the light. He's the only Son. He's the only God. He's the Lord. He's Jesus. He's the Lamb of God, the baptizer with the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, the one whom Moses wrote about, King of Israel, Son of Man. Boom, 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 boom. John wants you to know with conviction that he is testifying uniquely about Jesus, that's his human name, but that he is not simply Jesus, he is someone other than simply Jesus, he is very God. There's no other chapter in the Bible that you're going to find this reality in. Now you can just read it as a narrative, and you may not catch this, but boom, over and over and over again, um, John is reinforcing this. So he's, first of all, trying to reinforce that he is God. Secondly, he's trying to reinforce that Jesus is God and is on display in many ways, is he not? And he doesn't stop this, because when he continues on in his gospel, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the vine. I am, right? So he continues to put himself on display. Now, there's, some, there's a principle here that's important for us. I want, you, I want all of us, and this is including me, to be mindful that we do not allow ourselves in our witness to simply have a cookie-cutter approach to sharing who Jesus Christ is. The gospel writers didn't. The gospel writers emphasized different aspects of who Jesus was to the audience that they were speaking to. It's a pretty good thing. It doesn't take anything away from who Jesus is. It's just the way in which you are going to approach talking to that particular group of people based on their understanding of, of life from their pagan mindset, bringing Christ to bear into that context. That's what's taking place there in those Gospels. One's written to the Jews, one's written to Gentiles, one's written to both. And different words, different titles are used in those Gospels to explain who Jesus is. And we certainly can do that. And we do do that. What do we emphasize at Christmas? The birth of Jesus. What would be another, another expression of that? Emmanuel. Are we talking about Christ? Of course we are. But we're talking about a certain aspect of Christ from a certain angle, because people are relating at least to that angle. Oh, there's this baby who's in this manger, and we get all these presents, and let's talk about Jesus then in the context of what is cultural at that point in time, because through that lens, we can still present the gospel, right? And come along to Easter. How do we present Jesus at Easter? There's a number of different ways you can do it. Huh? Savior, Yes. What else? Pardon? The Lamb of God. What else? Risen? Yep. Lion of the tribe of Judah, redeemed. What else? All right, Rose of Sharon. He's our substitute, right? Um, you know, he, he is the Messiah. I mean, th these are all titles that you and I hear about, read about, know some things about or know a lot about and God has given us this great wealth to help us in our witness to present who Jesus is. Now you may have, as you have opportunity to talk with people, some kind of a methodology and that's good. That's helpful to have, you know, to be thinking about ahead of time. Always be ready to share the hope that you have, right? But I want to just caution you that be careful that you don't get yourself too cookie cutter that you can't branch out. Here are just great ways to present who Jesus is. Okay? 
And as I mentioned before, even Jesus revealed himself in many different ways. So it's important then as we, as we are witnesses that we share about this, this, this person of Christ, who he is. Then there's the work of Christ. As we come to this particular passage, as we narrow it down to verses 19 through 34, uh, we're going to come with really a, a couple of um, pictures, a couple of um, explanations that are primary to John um, about us testifying. So here we have this, this work of Christ. Let me just pause here by, by just asking a few questions. What did Jesus come to do? What was his mission? Um, why did he come? Some say that Jesus came as the greatest example that we have. And they would say, the reason Jesus came into this world is to set this great example for us so that we can follow his example and the world will be far better because of that. So if Jesus is kind, we should be what? Kind. Um, if he cared for the poor, which he did, we should do what? We should be like him. We should care for the poor. If he tells Peter to put down the sword and fight no more, a little spiritual coming out there, right? So should we. That's what they would say. If Jesus is willing to give up his life for someone else, then so should we. Now, those are all good things. Um, they certainly lead to a common phrase that was used probably in the 80s and 90s that became real, real popular and little armbands were made of it. It was, what would Jesus do, right? Now, there's an element of, okay, that's good, what would Jesus do? But the emphasis there is really on the wrong syllable, if you want to use that expression here. It's not so much, what would Jesus do? The issue is, what did Jesus do? Now, hear, hear this. Jesus is our example, but that is not the only reason he came. In fact, that is a sub-reason as to why he came. He didn't come simply to be an example. He came knowing very well that he was going to go to a cross, and on that cross he would be hung, and he would be a sacrifice for the sin of the world to pay the penalty and to suffer the wrath of his Father and to bear it all as my substitute, as your substitute. He didn't just hang up there saying, you know, it's good to die for someone else. There was something theological and spiritual that took place on that cross. It was a transaction that was accomplished in his hanging on that cross. And he knew exactly why he came. He had to go to the cross. That was his purpose. So for, for anyone to simply say he came as an example and to stop there, friends, is shortchanging the gospel. And much of what we might call liberal Christianity emphasizes the example side, but does not want to embrace the sacrificial um, atonement that was paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. Okay? And that's very, very clear when we come to this passage because the, the two summaries of his mission are given to us here in this passage. The first one is that he is the lamb. And as the lamb, he came to take away our sin. Now, in a culture that doesn't like to talk about sin, it's kind of hard to get through this one, isn't it? He came as a lamb for the purpose of taking away our sin. Right? The gospel, what it means to be a Christian, all has to do with what do we do with sin? What happens to this sin? If you just want to say, well, I want, I want the gospel, I want, I want a Christianity, but I just don't want to have to deal with sin, you don't have a gospel, you don't have Christianity, you have religion. Sin is a very important issue for us to have to deal with. It's not just something that, oh, yeah, I know we all do it, and everyone does it, and it's just a mistake and all that kind of stuff. No, it is something that separates us from God and results in eternal death. So God, in his grace, in his goodness, in his love for us, sent his son Jesus as this word incarnate to this earth, lived while, uh, while on this earth, 
testified on this earth, proclaimed the glories of the Father and the Godhead on this earth, but went to a cross ultimately to hang on that cross for our sin. And that was all ordained before the foundation of the world. And to remove sin out of the equation is to really, you know, is, is to take the bottom block and everything just falls flat. Because he didn't do that just to be an example. He did that to be the ultimate sacrifice once for all. Now, having said all that, comes as the lamb, he came to take away our sin. Notice what it says, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there's a sense in which this would be very familiar to the Jews who are listening to this, and there's also a sense in which it would not be familiar to them. It would be familiar to them in the sense that they understood a sacrifice of a lamb, but it may not have been completely understood, understood by them that there was an ultimate sacrifice that was coming that the Messiah would be that lamb. Okay? In fact, they were looking for a Messiah, right? They were looking for a deliverer, but God instead sends them a lamb. <laughs> and it's that lamb, ultimately, would be their deliverer. But they wouldn't know that. And John says initially, he came to his own, but his own what? He did not receive him. So they were familiar with the implications of this. Now, John's gospel is the gospel where this expression, the Lamb of God, is used. It's not used um, in, in the other gospels like John uses it all. But I just want to take a few minutes here just to, to work our way through the Word of God, just to highlight some, some, some flow of the subject of the Lamb of God, okay? You don't have this in your notes, so just, just, just kind of follow along with me in your Bible, if you would. Um, and I'm not going to read everything, but we're just going to turn to a few places. Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4. Um, here we have the, the, the account of Cain and Abel. And in Genesis chapter 4, we have here the lamb typified. The lamb typified, if you're taking notes, okay? Genesis chapter 4, and um, look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And so... We, we see there the beginnings now of, of what we understand to be the sacrifice that's taking place, but the sacrifice of a lamb. It says a flock, all right? But flocks are usually what? Sheep, okay? So, I mean, we're not stretching here at all, okay? Uh, so there's this beginning. It's typified. Let's jump now ahead to um, Genesis 22. Genesis 22, Abraham is told by God to take your son Isaac up into the mountain, and to sacrifice him. Notice verse 8. Oh, I should say verse 7 of chapter 22. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but there, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they, they went both of them together. And of course, just as he was ready to strike Isaac and to kill him in obedience to what God had commanded, God provided a lamb. So he didn't sacrifice his son, but he sacrificed that lamb. And so there, there we have uh, the lamb prophesied, um, this, this picture of, of what was going to happen with the lamb, the ultimate lamb, um, on display for us in an Old Testament passage like that. Then we have the lamb applied. That would be Exodus chapter 12. That would be the Passover lamb. If you remember the story, they're in Egypt and God sent the plagues. And there was going to be one last plague, and that was going to be the angel of death. And in order to protect your homes, you had to sacrifice this lamb and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts, and the angel would pass over you, right? That was the, that was the Passover lamb. So that lamb was sacrificed and actually was the beginning then of this traditional, um, instituted by God, uh, festival and time of remembering uh, God's deliverance of his people through the Passover lamb. Then the lamb is personified, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Now I say personified because it has, it has been a lamb all this time. It's been a lamb, it's been a lamb. But in Isaiah 53, we get a picture here that this is not just a lamb, this is actually a person that's being talked about. So Isaiah 53 and verse 7 
It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Of course, Isaiah 53 is the classic picture of the servant of Israel, who is Jesus. And um, here he is described as a lamb. So he's personified there, taken from the realm of simply being a lamb now to a person. Then we have uh, the lamb identified in John 129, the passage we're in, behold, the Lamb of God takes, takes away the sin of the world. Then turn to Revelation chapter 5. This is the passage that was read earlier for us, um, just a glorious passage of Scripture. But here we have the Lamb magnified, the Lamb magnified, Revelation chapter 5, and... Um, Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And go down to verse 9, and they sang a, a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and op open its seal. So that's, the, that's where we get the song, you know, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb that was slain. It's all from this particular passage. And so this theme of the lamb goes through the Bible goes through the Old Testament and ultimately ends up in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. And you want to just highlight that, look at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. So the, this Lamb ultimately is going to be there in the city. And of course, this is a picture. This is all the description of, of who Jesus is ultimately because of what he has done. Now, I think we can summarize um, all of this by saying that this expression, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is really the message of the Bible. Okay? It's really a way you can summarize the message of the Bible. And, and pulling from the text we just read, um, I think we can put it in three ways here, okay? First of all, um, in the Old Testament, the question is, where is the Lamb? When we get to the Gospels, it's, behold the Lamb. And we get to the book of Revelation, worthy is the Lamb. So there's this, there's this thread, there's this theme that is going there. Now, certainly, not all of the listeners to John the Baptist understood all of this theological implication. What they did understand, however, was that Throughout the year, lambs were taken to be sacrificed, right? And in their history, they remembered Abraham offering his son Isaac and God providing a lamb. So there was certainly an understanding that a lamb was necessary for a sacrifice. And, and of course, as we go on, not just in the Gospels, but ultimately in the epistles, the theology of that is, is crystallized for us that we understand that Jesus Christ was that sacrifice once for all. His sacrifice on the cross fulfilled and, and accomplished everything that all those Old Testament sacrifices were pointing toward. He was the answer. He was the true lamb. All the other lambs were simply appeasements. He was the one who ultimately brought satisfaction. Now, one of the things that we need to recognize here, he says, well, he takes away the sin of the world. Does that mean that we have universal salvation here? Does that mean that Jesus Christ on the cross automatically means that everyone who has ever been created is now saved? Is that what it says? Could someone read that and come to that conclusion? Yeah. Okay. However, we always read Scripture in its context, right? And we always compare Scripture with Scripture without going into too much of an argument. Just go back a few verses to, to chapter 1 and verse 9 and following. Now, there are people that actually believe um, in universal salvation based on statements like this. But if we're reading this, this gospel, as we're supposed to read it and understand things in its context, notice what it says, verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So there's certainly expectations that are put out there that someone has to receive him, right? It's not just this blanket, everyone, therefore, because of what Jesus did on the cross, 
is saved. There certainly is a requirement that is there. And so the context explains it. All right? He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Just let that settle. However God worked in your life, or maybe he is working in your life right now, and you're wrestling with the fact that you have sin and that you still sin and that that sin is not paid for. Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross, bore your sin, the consequences and the punishment of your sin. He bore that on himself. And he appeals to you to embrace what he has done and accomplished on that cross and to seek his forgiveness. Remember, in this gospel, evidence leads to belief, leads to life. Remember, chapter 20 and verse 30, evidence, belief, and life. And this is what God is, is challenging us with here. So this Lamb of God, this precious, beautiful Lamb of God is sacrificed on our behalf. And the implication of that and the purpose of that is that our sin is taken away. There's lots more to say about that. But we'll move on to the second statement, which I think is also very significant and yet somewhat little less understood. Not only is he the lamb that came to take away our sin, he's also the baptizer, and he came to give us life. So there is a give and there is a take. (laughs) He takes away our sin But Jesus himself also gives us life. And you say, well, wait a second. What is this talking about? I thought John was the Baptist. You're right. John is identified as the Baptist, but his baptism was a baptism of repentance. It wasn't a baptism that that created conversion by faith in Jesus Christ. It was a baptism where Jews were coming and saying, yes, I have sinned before God and I want to reconcile myself under the old order of Judaism. Let's read uh, the passage that is being talked about here because we'll notice here that there's something unique about this baptism that Jesus gives. Those verse 32. And John, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that he is the Son of God. Now, notice here we have this threefold uh, activity of this, this Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends. This Holy Spirit remains or abides. And the Holy Spirit ultimately baptizes. So he descends on Jesus, he remains in Jesus, which, which is not a temporary state, it's a constant state. And he then is also the one who is baptized, and Jesus is baptizing by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, in the other, in the other accounts of Jesus' baptism, the emphasis is on Jesus. Now, I'm not here trying to take away anything from Jesus, but the intent of the Apostle John here is to emphasize the witness of John the Baptist. Now, I want you to think about what we just read from the perspective of what does John say here and what is he revealing to us about his witness? Well, um, he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. So in other words, the Father revealed to him, hey, listen, when when you see the Spirit descend and abide, then you'll know that he is the Messiah, that he is the one, that he is the chosen one. The other Gospels, it's really just like, well, here's Jesus, and here's his baptism, and we see this is Jesus. In this situation, we see that it's, it's John's witness that he saw these things happen. Now, John's message here was motivated um, or motivated the human will to change. John's message of baptism motivated the human will to change. Christ's message brought the power to change, ultimately. 
It's one thing to be cleansed with water. It's another thing to be cleansed by the regenerating activity of the Holy Spirit. And friends, we must understand that what's going on here is not what we call, or some people call, a second blessing. It's not that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is happening after some kind of a salvation. This is simply the regenerating activity, the new life that God gives through His Son, Jesus Christ, to anyone who embraces Him as Lord and Savior. That is what is taking place here when it's talking about Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit. In fact, look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. As you're turning there, just let me just say, sadly, those who would like to recognize the baptism with the Holy Spirit like, will come back here and read into this passage more than what it actually is saying. Jesus was baptizing now with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the moment that you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, guess what? You were baptized into the body. You were immersed into the body. You were empowered and equipped and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism that Jesus brings. It's not just a baptism of water, it's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' gift as the baptizer, uh, baptizer is to give us life. And it's a life that is abundant and it's life that is to be lived out in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he takes away our sin and he gives us life. Friends, that's no small thing. That is a huge thing. Now, the reality is this is the message. The message is that Jesus is, and we can list off all these different titles and, and different names for him, but he came to take away our sin, and he came to give us life. That's the message. In its core reality, that is what the gospel is about. Now I would just allow, I want you to look at what I'm calling the appeal of Christ, and this is really uh, asking the question, how do we come to know Jesus? And what's interesting here in this passage here, uh, and kind of wrestled with this for a while, but we're, we're told a couple of times that John did not know something. I don't know if you scratch your head as you read that. Notice verse 31. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now let me just pause and say this. John the Baptist was a cousin to Jesus. It's not that John the Baptist did not know Jesus. It's that it wasn't until his baptism that he understood that he was the chosen one, the Messiah. Okay, so change your thinking a little bit there. Look now at verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So I myself did not know him. I myself did not know him. And friends, there's a, there's a lesson for us here. Um, God calls us to things, but we may not ultimately know the results. And we can't necessarily control the results. This passage reveals to us that John the Baptist was, look at verse 31, was accomplishing his purpose by coming and baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. That who might be revealed to Israel? The one that he did not know yet. <laughs> God calls us to testify. We don't know who ultimately is going to respond. We don't have a guarantee. But God calls us not to look for the response and be consumed with that, but to be consumed with being obedient and being faithful to proclaim his good news and to leave the results with him. Now, I'm not saying that you, you can't press and you can't appeal and you, you, know, you can, you can you know, kind of you know, encourage people to consider it, but you, you can't manipulate someone to the cross. John didn't know. And you know what? I'm thankful. I'm thankful that such a key figure, a key player in the unfolding plan of God did not know, because I can relate to that. But here is what 
John did know. Verse 32. <clears throat> this is what I saw. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. What is he communicating to us? He's communicating that what the Father revealed to him did take place. I saw it with my own eyes. I was an eyewitness. Secondly, this is what I heard. And really, I guess the heard should go before the saw, because the heard is verse 33. But he's, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, in other words, I heard it was revealed to me by the Father, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So he heard that first, then he saw the Spirit descend. And in doing that, friends, get this, he is convinced that he is, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now this word, I saw and ultimately I testify here in verse 34, is in the, in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means a settled conviction. It's not just, oh, I saw it in passing. I saw and I am convinced that it is true. So what he heard, when he saw what was revealed to him, he was convinced that what he had seen is true. And verse 34 tells us, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let me just kind of put some hands around this. Evidence plus revelation equals belief. Evidence plus revelation equals belief. Now, one of the, one of the, one of the, the areas that we need to struggle here, guys, even when we're talking about evidence, belief, and, and, and life that comes from Chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. Let me put it this way, and this might be a concluding thought, number one. Um, you cannot argue someone into the kingdom. Just put the evidence out there and just say, well, logically, you know, boom. As, as, if, as if the gospel is simply a logical formula. Evidence is there. But... Along with that evidence, there is also a dynamic of God at work in the heart of an individual, right? And so you're laying out the evidence. You're throwing out the seed of the gospel. You're speaking and you're testifying for him. And you're saying, God, you're the one that's going to create this life. I'm, I'm giving the evidence. But in order for someone to truly come to know Christ as Savior, there has to be a divine dynamic that has taken place in their life, and that's that dynamic of regeneration. So you can argue to your blue in the face and prove all your facts to be true, and they can still reject you even though those facts add up. And the reason that is the case is because there hasn't been a work of God in their heart. So my caution here, first of all, is this, guys. Don't get, don't get sidetracked with, <laughs> with just getting into arguments. Speak the truth, give the evidence, do it with love, do it patiently, and let God be God. Now, sometimes you're going to have to, you know, explain and, and maybe, you know, kind of work with someone on their misunderstanding of something, but, you know, back off. If you find yourself getting gritty and angry and, well, just, listen, the gospel is far more powerful than any emotion you can have. Trust it. And trust that God is working his plan and he is going to accomplish his plan. But the joy is that he, he desires to do that through us. Here's a second concluding thought. kind of takes us back to the second point. It's not up on the overhead. Christianity is a bloody religion. It is. It's about a lamb who was slain. messy. You read the Old Testament, the sacrifices that were there. You go into a temple, it would have stunk because of the blood and the stench. But Jesus ultimately came as that sacrifice once for all. It is a bloody religion. And scripture says without the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission of sin. Do not 
be afraid of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, even if it seems like it just doesn't taste good to the culture. Because their understanding of what we understand as a bloody gospel and a bloody religion is not because there's wickedness taking place, it's because there's sacrifice taking place. I mean, someone, you know, a little child is running across the road and a car is coming and an adult sees that and the adult goes and knocks the child out of the way and they die in the process and it's a bloody death. You don't sit back and go, ew, look at all that blood. What do you do? You marvel at the sacrifice. But in the economy of our sin, there needed to be a sacrifice, and it's Jesus. And so listen, we, we must understand that, that blood and the sacrifice of Christ's blood is absolutely necessary for the transaction that is needed for our salvation. But don't, don't be afraid of it. Don't shy away from it. We will sing about the blood. <laughs> because without it, we don't have a gospel. The third thing. It is clear that countless people in the churches don't know this Jesus. And this is a broad statement. People, they want baptism. I mean, especially in certain circles, you know, I have a child, the child was born, and it's time for that child to get baptized, or it's child, child, time for that child to go through a certain ceremony. People love the religious system, right? And they like the water baptism, but they do not necessarily want spirit baptism. And listen, without Christ's baptism, there is no gospel. There is no conversion. And so we must be careful that we are not just simply enjoying the ceremony that comes through our Christian culture, but that we recognize that it's Christ's baptism that is so significant. Here's the final thing, and just just reinforcing what we've already said in one sense. It is clear here that these two activities, Jesus as the Lamb of God taking away our sin and Jesus as the baptizer giving us life, are chief concerns to the Apostle John and ultimately are chief concerns to God himself. It is God who takes away our sin. It is God who gives life. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We cannot, we cannot even reach there except for what Jesus Christ has done. And listen, that reality will affect your marriage, it will affect how you raise your kids, it will affect how you live your lives in this world. We are thankful for the gospel we are amazed at the gospel. We're in awe of the gospel. But hear this. We also must recognize the power of the gospel. And in recognizing the power of that gospel, our responsibility to open up our mouths and give verbal testimony that Jesus is God. And he came to take away sin. He came to give life. And that you, if you know him, See the evidence, and that God is at work in your life. He's drawing you to Himself. You can become one of His children. You can enter into the kingdom, into the family of God. Lord, help us today. Uh, we are so undeserving, and yet, Lord, at the same time, Lord, we are so thankful. There's so many different ways, Lord, that we can understand You, and I thank You, Lord, for for giving us all those different pictures and awarenesses, Lord, of who you are and, and wetting our whistle to some degree. But Lord, help us, Lord, to, to discover you more, to understand you more, to, to, to get a grip of, of who you are, Lord, so that we would, uh, we would grow in our understanding of you. Lord, we, we, we exist here as a community of believers because we desire to know you to know your word, to know the gospel, but Lord, we also desire to apply it to our own lives. And Lord, today, if, if we have been wandering in our hearts and if our passions have been places, Lord, that you don't want them to be, I ask, Lord, that 
from your word today that we would have a realigning take place. There would be confession of sin and a restoration of a life. And Lord, we also are committed to proclaiming your gospel, your whole gospel, your powerful, beautiful, wonderful, bloody, satisfying, eternal gospel. May we be faithful, Lord, as a church and as your people to proclaim it.